Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! So this afternoon, I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. The House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol has unanimously voted to subpoena former President Donald Trump to testify. During the hearing, lawmakers outlined Trump's central role in the January 6th insurrection. We'll air excerpts, including dramatic behind-the-scenes footage of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senator Chuck Schumer responding as the Capitol was being attacked. Personal safety is to just transcend everything. But the fact is, on any given day, they're breaking the law in many different ways. And quite frankly, much of it at the instigation of the president of the United States. And now, uh, if, if he could, could at least uh, somebody. Yeah, why don't you get the president to tell them to leave the Capitol, Mr. Attorney General, and your law enforcement responsibility? A public statement they should all leave. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The House Select Committee investigating the U.S. Capitol insurrection has voted to subpoena former President Donald Trump, demanding he turn over documents and testify about his role in fomenting violence on January 6th. 2021. The committee's vote on Thursday afternoon capped what's widely expected to be its last public hearing. After headlines, we'll spend the rest of the hour playing extended excerpts of the hearing. The Supreme Court has rejected a bid by Donald Trump's lawyers to derail a federal criminal probe into whether Trump violated the Espionage Act and presidential records laws and whether he obstructed justice to cover up those crimes. On Thursday, justices refused to take up a challenge by Trump's lawyers to a lower court ruling allowing the Justice Department to use records marked as classified in its investigation into documents held by Trump at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. This week, reports emerged that a Trump aide told the FBI he was ordered to move boxes of documents out of the basement storage area into Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago. The FBI reportedly has surveillance footage showing the boxes being transferred. In North Carolina, five people were killed, including a police officer, after a gunman opened fire on a walking trail in a residential area of Raleigh Thursday afternoon. Police say they've arrested a suspect identified only as a white male juvenile who's been hospitalized. Raleigh's mayor, Marianne Baldwin, spoke after the shooting. We have to end this mindless gun violence that is happening in our country. We have work to do, but there are too many victims. And so we have to wake up. 
A jury in Florida has rejected the death penalty for Nicholas Cruz, who killed 17 people in a 2018 mass shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. On Thursday, Cruz was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole after a single juror refused to recommend a death sentence. Under Florida law, death penalty cases require a unanimous decision. The life sentence drew angry reactions from family members who packed the courtroom. This is Ilan Mark Aladev, whose daughter Alyssa was among Cruz's victims. I'm disgusted with the system. That you can allow 17 dead and 17 others shot and wounded and not give the death penalty. What do we have the death penalty for? What is the purpose of it? Some Parkland survivors were against capital punishment. Cameron Caskey, who was 17 and a junior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas at the time of the attack, said, quote, the death penalty is barbaric and implementing state violence will not bring any of the victims back. He added, make no mistake, it's the politicians who support the gun lobby that should be held accountable for this, he said. The Biden administration has started expelling Venezuelan asylum seekers to Mexico under an expansion of the pandemic and Trump-era Title 42 policy that's been used to block at least 2 million migrants from applying for asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. The U.S. government this week announced it will only accept up to 24,000 Venezuelans up to under a new plan, while rapidly expelling others who don't meet strict financial and other criteria. Some 25,000 Venezuelan asylum seekers were apprehended at the southern border in the month of August alone as people continue to flee, in part due to the catastrophic impacts of U.S. economic sanctions on Venezuela. This is Venezuelan asylum seeker Leonesi Castillo, who was expelled to Mexico Thursday. I entered the United States. They sent us back with no response. They registered our fingerprints, took our pictures, and then sent us back over the bridge, saying, like, go back home again. They didn't say anything. They requested that we have a relative who has been living there in the U.S. for over four or five years. It's unfair. We want a response. We're in Mexico. We've run out of money. We've had our bags stolen. Shelters don't take us in. We're stranded in the street. Nobody wants to help us. In more immigration news, the Texas Tribune reports a group of asylum seekers who were flown from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, an island off Massachusetts, by Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis last month, may be able to apply for a special visa to stay in the United States. This comes after Bayer County Sheriff Javier Salazar certified the 49 asylum seekers had been victims of a crime when they were coerced into boarding the flights to Martha's Vineyard. This could pave the way for them to apply for a visa for victims or witnesses of a crime. The asylum seekers were convinced to board the planes by a woman identified as Perla Huerta, a former counterintelligence agent who falsely promised them jobs and housing if they went to Massachusetts. In Ukraine, Russian officials have asked residents of Kherson to evacuate as Ukraine's military advances on the Russian-occupied city seeking to recapture it. Kherson is part of territory that Russian President Vladimir Putin claimed to have annexed in a move condemned this week by the U.N. General Assembly. 
In Iraq, lawmakers have elected Abdul Latif Rashid as the country's new president, paving the way for the formation of a new government after a year of political uncertainty and conflict in the Iraqi parliament. Rashid immediately named Mohammad Shia al-Sudani as new prime minister. Al-Sudani now has 30 days to form a new government. Protests rocked Iraq for months in response to the political turmoil, with supporters and opponents of the powerful Iraqi cleric Muqtad al-Sadr clashing in Baghdad. Al-Sadr resigned from parliament in August. His party, the Sadrist movement, won the most seats in last October's parliamentary election, but failed to win an outright majority. Al-Sadr's supporters occupied the Iraqi parliament in an effort to block lawmakers from choosing a new prime minister. Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank fatally shot a Palestinian man during a raid on the Jenin refugee camp this morning. 20-year-old Martin Debaya is at least the 160th Palestinian killed by Israel in the West Bank this year. Among the wounded was physician Abdullah al-Ahmad, who's in critical condition with a gunshot wound to the head. Al Jazeera reports Israeli forces were filmed shooting at ambulance crews. A new report warns some wild animal populations are declining on a devastating scale. The 2022 Living Planet Index finds populations of amphibians, birds, fish, mammals and reptiles that were tracked for the study have declined by an average of 69 percent since 1970. The report's authors note populations of many species have increased over that time, even as the biodiversity of animal species continue to plunge rapidly due to the combined effects of habitat loss overfishing, pollution, and the climate crisis. A warning to our audience, this story contains graphic footage and descriptions of prison violence. In Florida, a federal judge has held the Federal Bureau of Prisons and a local warden in contempt of court over their neglect and indifference to the plight of a 54-year-old prisoner who was dying of cancer. Frederick Marvin Bardell was diagnosed with an intestinal mass several years ago at a time when his tumor was treatable. But his repeated requests for compassionate release and health care were denied and his cancer metastasized. In a scathing 14-page ruling, U.S. District Judge Roy Bolton wrote, quote, The treatment Mr. Bardell received in the last days of his life is inconsistent with the moral values of a civilized society and unworthy of the Department of Justice of the United States of America, unquote. The judge's order contained photographs of Bardell just after he'd arrived at a hospital bleeding, incontinent, and emaciated, after he was, quote, deposited on the curb of the Dallas-Fort Worth airport to fend for himself, unquote. He died nine days after his release. In more news from Florida, the Miami Herald has published shocking footage showing how 62-year-old Florida prisoner Craig Ridley was left to starve and die after prison guards broke his neck in 2017. Video taken by a prison official shortly after the catastrophic injury reveals guards ignored Ridley's protest that, quote, my neck is broken and I'm paralyzed. My assistant Sergeant Nettles and place an inmate on the ground right here. At this time, the inmate's refusing to walk to go to medical for his post-use force physical and pre-confinement. We've got a wheelchair on the way. The guards repeatedly accused Ridley of faking his injury and hoisted his limp body into a wheelchair. Greg Ridley died October 12, 2017, five years ago this week, intubated 
and unable to communicate. The Social Security Administration has announced its largest increase in benefits in more than 40 years. On Thursday, officials said retirees and people who receive disability benefits will see an 8.7 percent boost to their monthly checks beginning next year. The increase comes after year-over-year inflation topped 8 percent over the same period. Meanwhile, new housing data shows U.S. rents increased by 7.2 percent over the last year, while an index of U.S. food prices grew by more than 11 percent. The Wall Street Journal reports Kroger and Albertsons are in talks to secure a deal that, if approved, would unite the two largest supermarket operators in the United States. Progressive groups are calling on the Federal Trade Commission to reject the merger, warning supermarket consolidation usually leads to price hikes. And civil rights activist and minister Charles Melvin Sherrod died this week at the age of 85 in Albany, Georgia. Sherrod joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee as its first full-time field secretary in 1961. He was a key figure in the Albany movement, which galvanized Georgians in the fight against segregation and for voting rights in Jim Crow South. He later went on to serve as Albany City Commissioner and teach at Albany State University, along with his wife, Shirley Sherrod, and others. He founded the Black-Owned Farming Collective and Land Trust New Communities. Shirley Sherrod said of her late husband, quote, his life serves as a shining example of service to one's fellow man. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol held what may have been its final public hearing Thursday. The meeting ended with the committee unanimously voting to subpoena former President Donald Trump setting up a likely court battle. Committee members said the former president is at the center of what happened January 6th when far-right insurrectionists attacked the Capitol in an effort to keep Trump in power. Today, we spend the hour airing excerpts of the hearing. We begin with Democratic Congressmember Zoe Lofgren of California, who detailed how Trump had developed a plan to declare victory in the 2020 election, regardless of the actual outcome. A few days before the election, Mr. Trump also consulted with one of his outside advisors, inside activist Tom Fitton, about the strategy for election night. The select committee got this pre-prepared statement from the National Archives. As you can see, the draft statement, which was sent on October 31st, declares, we had an election today and I won. And the Fitton memo specifically indicates a plan that only the votes counted by the election day deadline, and there is no election day deadline, would matter. Everyone knew that ballot counting would lawfully continue past election day, claiming that the counting on election uh, night must stop before millions of votes were counted was, as we now know, a key part of President Trump's uh, premeditated uh, plan. On election day, just after 5 p.m., Mr. Fitton indicated he'd spoken with the president about the statement. Sending along again, just talk to him about the draft below. Again, this uh, plan uh, to keep, um, uh, to declare victory was in place before any of the results had been determined. In the course of our uh, investigation, we also interviewed Brad Parscale. President Trump's former campaign manager. He told us he understood that President Trump planned as early as July 
that he would say he won the election even if he lost. And just a few days before the election, Steve Bannon, a former Trump chief White House strategist and outside advisor to President Trump, spoke to a group of his associates from China and said this. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs vote in May. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. <laughs> also, also if, Trump is, if Trump is losing mm. by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, mm. it's going to be even crazier. No, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. I'm yeah, court, uh, agree. I'm directing the attorney general mm. to shut down all ballot places in all 50 states. It's going to be no. He's not going out easy. Trump, if Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy As you know, Mr. Bannon refused to testify in our investigation. He's been convicted of criminal contempt of Congress, and he's awaiting sentencing. But the evidence indicates that Mr. Bannon had advanced knowledge of Mr. Trump's intent to clear victory falsely on election night, but also that Mr. Bannon knew about Mr. Trump's planning for January 6th. Here's what Bannon said on January 5th. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's all converging, and now we're on, as they say, the point of attack, right? The point of attack tomorrow. I'll tell you this. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen, okay? It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. You have made this happen, and tomorrow it's game day. So strap in. Let's get ready. Another close associate of Donald Trump apparently knew of Mr. Trump's intentions as well. Now, Roger Stone is a political operative with a reputation for dirty tricks, In November 2019, he was convicted of lying to Congress and other crimes and sentenced to more than three years in prison. He's also a longtime advisor to President Trump and was in communication with President Trump throughout 2020. Mr. Trump pardoned Roger Stone on December 23, 2020. Right before the election, here's Roger Stone talking about what President Trump would do after the election. Let's just hope we're celebrating. (laughs) I suspect it'll be, I really do suspect it will still be up in the air. But when that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. No, we won. F*** you. Sorry, over. We won. You're wrong. F*** you. ABC. I said the Lord and let's get right to the violence. That's what I'm (laughs) (laughs) It's no fault. The select committee called Mr. Stone as a witness, but he invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? Uh, On the advice of counsel, I respectfully uh, declined to answer your question on the basis of the Fifth Amendment. And Mr. Stone, did you have any role in planning for the violence on January 6th? Uh, once again, I will assert my Fifth Amendment right to decline to answer your question. Although we don't yet have all the relevant records of Roger Stone's communications, 
Even Stone's own social media posts acknowledge that he spoke with Donald Trump on December 27th as preparations for January 6th were underway. In this post, you can see how Roger Stone talked about his conversations with President Trump. He wrote, I also told the president exactly how he can appoint a special counsel with full subpoena power to ensure those who are attempting to steal the 2020 election through voter fraud are charged and convicted, and to ensure Donald Trump continues as our president. As we know by now, the idea for a special counsel was not just an idle suggestion. It was something President Trump had actually tried to do earlier that month. We know that Roger Stone was at the Willard Hotel on January 5th and 6th, and we know from other witness testimony that President Trump asked his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to speak with Roger Stone and General Michael Flynn that night. In addition to his connection to President Trump, Roger Stone maintained extensive direct connections to two groups responsible for violently attacking the Capitol, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Individuals from both of these organizations have been charged with a crime of seditious conspiracy. Now, what is seditious conspiracy? It is a conspiracy to use violent force against the United States to oppose the lawful authority of the United States. Multiple associates of Roger Stone from both the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys have been charged with this crime. Close associates of Roger Stone, including Joshua James, have pled guilty to this crime. We know that at least seven Oath Keepers who have been criminally charged provided personal security for Roger Stone or were seen with him on January 6th or in the weeks leading up to January 6th. For example... Joshua James, the leader of the Alabama Oath Keepers, provided security for Roger Stone and was with him on January 5th. This is uh, the picture of the two uh, together on January 5th. James entered the Capitol on January 6th. He assaulted a police officer. Earlier this year, he pled guilty to seditious conspiracy and obstruction of Congress. Another example is the married couple, Kelly and Connie Meggs. Now, Kelly Meggs was the leader of the Florida chapter of the Oath Keepers. Both he and his wife provided security for Roger Stone, and both are charged with leading a military-style stack attack of Oath Keepers, attacking the Capitol on January 6th. Perhaps even more disturbing is Roger Stone's close association with Enrique Tarrio, the national chairman of the Proud Boys. Roger Stone's connection with Enrique Tarrio and the Proud Boys is well documented. By video evidence, with phone records the select committee has obtained, um, Tarrio, along with other Proud Boys, has been charged with multiple crimes uh, concerning the attack on January 6th, including seditious conspiracy. During the attack... Tario sent a message to other Proud Boys claiming, we did that. He also visited the White House on December 12th. Later that day, he posted a disturbing video claiming credit for the attack. This video, posted on January 6th, 
was apparently created prior to the attack. This big lie, President Trump's effort to convince Americans that he had won the 2020 election, began before the election results even came in. It was intentional. It was premeditated. It was not based on election results or any evidence of actual fraud affecting the results or any actual problems with voting machines. It was a plan concocted in advance to convince his supporters that he won. And the people who seemingly knew about that plan in advance would ultimately play a significant role in the events of January 6th. That was Democratic Congressmember Zolofgren of California. Thursday's House January 6th hearing also featured more unseen video testimony introduced by Republican Congressmember Adam Kensinger. On December 11th, Trump's allies lost a lawsuit in the U.S. Supreme Court that he regarded as his last chance at success in the courts. A newly obtained Secret Service message from that day shows how angry President Trump was about the outcome. Quote, just FYI, POTUS is pissed. Breaking news, Supreme Court denied his lawsuit. He is livid now. Cassidy Hutchison, an aide to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, was present for that conversation and described it in this way. This is the day that the Supreme Court had rejected that case. Mr. Meadows and I were in the White House residence at a Christmas reception. And as we were walking back from the Christmas reception that evening, the president was walking out of the Oval Office, so we crossed paths in the Rose Garden Colonnade. The president was fired up about the Supreme Court decision. And so I was standing next to Mr. Meadows, but I stepped back, so I was probably two, three feet catty corner from a diagonal from him. The president's just raging about the decision and how it's wrong and why didn't we make more calls and just this typical anger outburst at this decision. And the president said, he so he had said something to the effect of, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. We need to figure it out. I don't want people to know that we lost. That was former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson. Coming up, we are more of Thursday's January 6th hearing. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. During Thursday's House January 6th hearing, video was aired showing Donald Trump repeatedly made false claims about voter fraud about the 2020 election that directly contradicted facts presented to him by his top officials, including Attorney General William Barr and Richard Donahue, the acting United States Deputy Attorney General. This is Democratic Congressmember Elaine Luria of Virginia. Donald Trump was the driver behind each part of this plan. He was personally and directly involved. Of course, a key element of the plan was continuing to convince tens of millions of Americans that he did not, in fact, lose. 
Again, he did this even though his own campaign advisors and his Justice Department officials told him his claims of fraud were wrong. In this video, you'll see that even when top law enforcement officials told the president his election fraud claims were false, he still repeated the claims in the days and weeks that followed. Sometimes, even the I very next day. I specifically raised the Dominion voting machines, which I found to be among the most uh, disturbing allegations, disturbing in the sense that I saw absolutely zero basis for the allegations. I told them that it was, that it was uh, crazy stuff, and they were wasting their time on that. And uh, it was doing a great, grave disservice to the country. Nine days after that meeting. We have a company that's very suspect. Its name is Dominion. With the turn of a dial or the change of a chip, you can press a button for Trump and the vote goes to Biden. What kind of a system is this? We definitely talked about Antrim County again. That was sort of done at that point because the Henry count had been done and all of that. But we cited back to that to say, you know, this is an example of what people are telling you and what's being filed in some of these court filings that are just not supported by the evidence. And this is the problem. The problem is people keep telling you these things and they turn out not to be true. Six days after that meeting. In addition, there is the highly troubling matter of Dominion voting systems. In one Michigan county alone, 6,000 votes were switched from Trump to Biden. And the same systems are used in the majority of states in our country. I went into this and would, you know, tell them how crazy some of these allegations were and how ridiculous some of them were. Uh, I'm talking about some of them like, you know, more votes, more absentee votes were cast in Pennsylvania than there were absentee ballots requests. You know, stuff like that it was just easy to blow up. There was never... There was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were. One day after that meeting. There were more votes than there were voters. Think of that. You had more votes than you had voters. That's an easy one to figure. And spy the thousands. Then he raised the, the, the big vote dump, uh, as he called it, in Detroit. And that, you know, he said people saw boxes coming into the counting station at all hours of the morning. And I said, Mr. President, there are 630 precincts in Detroit. And unlike elsewhere in the state, they centralize the counting process. So they're not counted in each precinct. They're moved to counting stations. And so the normal process would involve boxes coming in at all different hours. One day after that meeting. This is Michigan. At 6.31 in the morning, a vote dump of 149,772 votes came in unexpectedly. With regard to Georgia, we looked at the tape, we interviewed the witnesses. There is no suitcase. The president kept fixating on this suitcase that supposedly had fraudulent ballots and that the suitcase was rolled out from under the table. And I said... No, sir, there is no suitcase. You can watch that video over and over. There is no suitcase. There is a wheeled bin where they carry the ballots, and that's just how they move ballots around that facility. There's nothing suspicious about that at all. Ten days after that meeting. Election officials pull boxes, Democrats, 
and suitcases of ballots out from under a table. You all saw it on television. Totally fraudulent. This happened over and over again, and our committee's report will document it. Purposeful lies made in public directly at odds with what Donald Trump knew from unassailable sources, the Justice Department's own investigations, and his own campaign. Donald Trump maliciously repeated this nonsense to a wide audience over and over again. His intent was to deceive. President Trump's plan also involved trying to coerce government officials to change the election outcome in the states he lost. He personally reached out to numerous state officials and pressured them to take unlawful steps to alter the election results in those states. These actions, taken directly by the president himself, made it clear what his intentions were to prevent the orderly transfer of power. We all recall, for example, President Trump's tape-recorded call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. At the time this call occurred, President Trump had already been told repeatedly by the U.S. Justice Department, by his campaign, and by his advisors that his allegations of fraud in Georgia were false. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Look, we need only 11,000 votes. We have far more than that as it stands now. We'll have more and more. So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. That was President Trump on a call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. That call is now at the center of a criminal probe in Georgia. During Thursday's House January 6 hearing, Democratic Congressmember Adam Schiff revealed the Secret Service and other agencies had prior knowledge of potential violence on January 6. Days before January 6, the president's senior advisors at the Department of Justice and FBI, for example— received an intelligence summary that included material indicating that certain people traveling to Washington were making plans to attack the Capitol. This summary noted online calls to occupy federal buildings, rhetoric about invading the Capitol building, and plans to arm themselves and to engage in political violence at the event. Other agencies were also hearing predictions suggesting possible violence at the Capitol. On a call with President Trump's White House National Security Staff in early January 2021, Deputy Secretary of Defense David Norquist had warned about the potential that the Capitol would be the target of the attack. Here's General Mark Milley, who was also present for this call, describing Deputy Secretary Norquist's warning. So during these calls, I only remember it in hindsight because he was almost like clairvoyant. Um, Norquist says during one of these calls, the greatest threat is a direct assault on the Capitol. I'll never forget it. This email, for example, was an alert that the Secret Service received on December 24th with the heading, Armed and Ready, Mr. President. According to the intelligence, multiple users online were targeting members of Congress, instructing others to march into the chambers on January 6th and make sure they know who to fear. 
In this report received on December 26th, a Secret Service field office related tip that had been received by the FBI. According to the source of the tip, the Proud Boys plan to march armed into D.C. They think that they will have a large enough group to march into D.C. armed, the source reported, and will outnumber the police so they can't be stopped. The source went on to say their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously and investigate further. The source also made clear that the Proud Boys had detailed their plans on multiple websites like the Donald.win. Let's pause here. The Secret Service had advanced information more than 10 days beforehand regarding the Proud Boys planning for January 6th. We know now, of course, that the Proud Boys and others did lead the assault on our Capitol building. On December 31st, agents circulated intelligence reports that President Trump's supporters have proposed a movement to occupy Capitol Hill. In particular, they flagged spikes in violent hashtags like, We Are the Storm, 1776 Rebel, and Occupy Capitals. On January 5th, a Secret Service open source unit flagged a social media account on the Donald.win that threatened to bring a sniper rifle to a rally on January 6th. The user also posted a picture of a handgun and rifle with the caption, Sunday Gun Day, providing Overwatch January 6th will be wild. Later, on the evening of January 5th, the Secret Service learned during an FBI briefing that right-wing groups were establishing armed QRFs, or Quick Reaction Forces, readying to deploy for January 6th. Groups like the Oath Keepers were standing by at the ready should POTUS request assistance. By invoking the Insurrection Act, agents were informed. Democratic Congressmember Adam Schiff, coming up more excerpts of the January 6th hearing. Stay with us. Albert Eiler, his live was too short, by Alexander Hawkins and Tamika Reed. Composer and cellist Tamika Reed has been named as one of the MacArthur Fellows of 2022. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. House January 6th Committee also aired previously unseed video of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senator Chuck Schumer, and others responding as the Capitol was being attacked on that day. The footage was filmed by Pelosi's daughter, the documentary filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi. Some Republicans had previously suggested Pelosi had failed to call the National Guard to protect the Capitol, but the footage aired Thursday sheds new light on her actions. We'll play that new video in a moment. But first, let's go back to June. This is House Minority Whip Steve Scalise and fellow Republican Congress member Jim Banks. Was Speaker Pelosi involved in the decision to delay National Guard assistance on January 6th? Those are serious 
and real questions that this committee committee refuses to even ask. Thank you, Jim. And Jim Banks just raised some very serious questions that should be answered by the January 6th commission, but they're not. And they're not for a very specific reason, and that's because Nancy Pelosi doesn't want those questions to be answered. So that's House Minority Whip Steve Scalise speaking in June, questioning House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's response to the January 6th attacks. Well, it turns out Scalise was in the room when Pelosi called the Pentagon on speakerphone to demand help. Let's go back to Thursday's January 6th hearing. This is Democratic Congress member Jamie Raskin. As the president watched the bloody attack unfold on Fox News from his dining room, members of Congress and other government officials stepped into the gigantic leadership void created by the president's chilling and studied passivity that day. What you're about to see is previously unseen footage of congressional leaders, both Republicans and Democrats, as they were taken to a secure location during the riot. You'll see how everyone involved was working actively to stop the violence, to get federal law enforcement deployed to the scene to put down the violence and secure the Capitol complex. Not just Democrats like Speaker Nancy Pelosi and House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, but Republicans like Vice President Pence, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Majority Whip John Thune, and countless other appointees across the administration. All of them did what President Trump was not doing, what he simply refused to do. Take a listen. They're taking the uh, north front scaffolding. Unless we get more munitions, we are not going to be able to hold. The door has been breached, and people are gaining access into the Capitol. We have got to get finished the proceedings, or else we're going to have to come to Senator Schumer is at a secure location, and they're locked down in the Senate. There has to be some way we can maintain the sense that people have that there's uh, some security or some confidence uh, that government can function and that we can elect the President of the United States. Did we go back into session? We did go back into session, but now apparently everybody on the floor is putting on tear gas masks to prepare for a breach. Well, I'm trying to get more information. They're putting on their tear gas masks. I can't. We need an area for the house members. They're all walking over now through the tunnels. I'm going to call up the effing secretary of DOD. We have some senators who are still in their hideaways. They need massive personnel now. Can you get the Maryland National Guard to come too? I have something to say, Mr. Secretary. Well, I'm going to call the, the mayor of Washington, D.C. right now and see what uh, other outreach she has, other police departments, as Senator Leader Hoyer has mentioned. Uh, Governor, I don't know if you have been approached about the 
uh, Virginia National Guard, Mr. Hoyer was connect. I was speaking to uh, uh, Governor Hogan, uh, but I still think you probably need the okay of the, uh, the federal government in order to come into another jurisdiction. Thank you. Oh my gosh. They're just breaking windows. They're doing all, all kinds of, it's really that somebody, they said somebody was shot. It's just, it's just horrendous and all at the instigation of the President of the United States. Okay, thank you, Governor. I appreciate what you're doing. And if you don't mind, I'd like to stay in touch. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Virginia Guard has been called in. You know, I'm just talking to Governor Northam. And what he said is they sent 200 uh, state police and a unit of the National Guard. They're breaking windows and going in, uh, uh, obviously ransacking our offices and all the rest of that. That's nothing. The, uh, the concern we have about uh, personal harm, safety, personal safety is it just transcends everything. But the fact is, on any given day, they're breaking the law in many different ways. And quite frankly, much of it at the instigation of the President of the United States. And now, uh, if, if he could, could at least uh, somebody. Yeah, why don't you get the President to tell them to leave the Capitol, Mr. Attorney General, in your law enforcement responsibility? A public statement they should all leave. cannot be just we're waiting for so-and-so. We need them there now, whoever you got. You okay. have, you also have troops, this is Stenny Hoyer, troops. Okay, so we have a little bit of time to make that decision. Andrews Air Force Base. All right. Other military bases. Thank you. We Thanks, need Paul. active Bye. duty, National Guard. How soon in the future can you have the place evacuated, and pulled, you know, cleaned out? I, I don't want to speak for the well, just pretend, just pretend for a moment it was the Pentagon or the White House or some other entity that was under siege. And let me say, you can logistically get people there as you make the plan. how we can get this job done today. We talked to Mitch about it earlier. He, uh, he's not in the room right now, but he was with us earlier uh, and said, you know, we want to expedite this and hopefully they could confine it to just one complaint, Arizona, and then we could vote and, and it would be, you know, then just move forward with the rest of the state. The overriding wish is to do it at the Capitol. What we are being told very directly is it's going to take days for the Capitol to be okay again. We've gotten a very bad report about the condition of, of the um, house floor with defecation and all that kind of thing as well. I don't think that that's hard to clean up, but I do think it is uh, more from a security standpoint of making sure that everybody is out of the building and how long will that take. I just got off with the vice president. And I got off with the vice president-elect. 
Okay. But what we left the conversation with, because he said he had the impression from Mitch that Mitch wants to get everybody back to do it there. Yes. I said that what we're getting a counterpoint that is we could take time uh, to clean up the poo-poo that they're making all over the literally and figuratively in the capital, and that uh, it may take days to get back. That was House Speaker Nancy Pelosi speaking to then-Vice President Mike Pence. She was at Fort McNair with the other legislators in previously unseen footage during the January 6th insurrection. Thursday's hearing concluded with a vote to subpoena former President Donald Trump. This is Select Committee Chair Congressmember Benny Thompson. We have left no doubt, none, that Donald Trump led an effort to upend American democracy that directly resulted in the violence of January 6th. He tried to take away the voice of the American people in choosing their president and replace the will of the voters with his will to remain in power. He is the one person at the center of the story of what happened on January 6th. So we want to hear from him. The committee needs to do everything in our power to tell the most complete story possible and provide recommendations to help ensure nothing like January 6th ever happens again. We need to be fair and thorough and gain a full context for the evidence we've obtained. But the need for this committee to hear from Donald Trump goes beyond our fact-finding. This is a question about accountability to the American people. He must be accountable. He is required to answer for his actions. He's required to answer to those police officers who put their lives and bodies on the line to defend our democracy. He's required to answer to those millions of Americans who votes he wanted to throw out as part of his scheme to remain in power. And whatever is underway to ensure this accountability under law, this committee will demand a full accounting to every American person of the events of January 6th. So it is our obligation to seek Donald Trump's testimony. There's precedent in American history for Congress to compel the testimony of a president. president. There's also precedent for presidents to provide testimony and documentary evidence to congressional investigators. We also recognize that a subpoena to a former president is a serious and extraordinary action. That's why we want to take this step in full view of the American people especially because the subject matter at issue is so important to the American people and the stakes are so high for our future and our democracy. And so, 
I recognize the Vice Chair, Ms. Cheney of Wyoming, to offer a motion. Mr. Chairman, pursuant to today's notice, I send to the desk a committee resolution and ask for its immediate consideration. The clerk will report the resolution. Committee Resolution 1, resolved that the chairman be and is hereby directed to subpoena Donald J. Trump for documents and testimony in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol pursuant to Section 5C4 of House Resolution 503 and Clause 2M of Rule 11 of the Rules of the House of Representatives. The gentlewoman from Wyoming is recognized on her resolution. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, our committee now has sufficient information to answer many of the critical questions posed by Congress at the outset. We have sufficient information to consider criminal referrals for multiple individuals and to recommend a range of legislative proposals to guard against another January 6th. But a key task remains. We must seek the testimony under oath of January 6th central player. More than 30 witnesses in our investigation have invoked their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And several of those did so specifically in response to questions about their dealings with Donald Trump directly. Here are a few examples. This is Roger Stone with Oath Keepers at the Willard Hotel on the morning of January 6th. And here is Mr. Stone testifying before our committee. Did you speak to President Trump on his private cell phone on either January 5th or January 6th? Uh, once again, on advice of counsel, I will assert my Fifth Amendment right to respectfully decline to answer your question. This is General Michael Flynn walking with Oath Keepers on December 12th, 2020. And here is General Flynn's testimony before our committee. Did you, General Flynn, talk to President Trump at any point on January 6, 2021? The fifth. Here is John Eastman fraudulently instructing tens of thousands of angry protesters that the vice president could change the election outcome on January 6th. Later on this same day, Dr. Eastman acknowledged in writing that Donald Trump knew what he was attempting was illegal. Here is John Eastman testifying before our committee. Did President Trump authorize you to discuss publicly your January 4th, 2021 conversation with him? Fifth. So is it your position that you can discuss in the media direct conversations you had with the President of the United States, but you will not discuss those same conversations with this committee? Fifth. Here is Jeff Clark who conspired with Donald Trump to corrupt the Department of Justice. President Trump wanted to appoint Jeff Clark as acting attorney general. And as you can see in this call log we obtained from the National Archives, he did so. And here is Mr. Clark testifying before our committee. Mr. Clark, when did you first talk directly with President Trump? Fifth. Uh, Mr. Clark, did you discuss with President Trump allegations of fraud in the 2020 election? Fifth. Other witnesses have also gone to enormous lengths to avoid testifying about their dealings with Donald Trump. 
Steve Bannon has been tried and convicted by a jury of his peers for contempt of Congress. He is scheduled to be sentenced for this crime later this month. Criminal proceedings regarding Peter Navarro continue. And Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, has refused to testify based upon executive privilege. The committee's litigation with him continues. Mr. Chairman, at some point, the Department of Justice may well unearth the facts that these and other witnesses are currently concealing. But our duty today is to our country and our children and our Constitution. We are obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. And every American is entitled to those answers so we can act now to protect our republic. So this afternoon, I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Gentlelady yields back. If there's no further debate, the question is on agreeing to the resolution. Those in favor will say aye. 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 Those opposed is no. In the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. Mr. Chairman, I request a recorded vote. A recorded vote is requested. The clerk will call the roll. Ms. Cheney? Aye. Ms. Cheney? Aye. Ms. Lofgren? Aye. Ms. Lofgren? Aye. Mr. Schiff? Aye. Mr. Schiff? Aye. Mr. Aguilar? Aye. Mr. Aguilar? Aye. Mrs. Murphy? Aye. Mrs. Murphy? Aye. Mr. Raskin? Aye. Mr. Raskin? Aye. Mrs. Luria? Aye. Mrs. Luria? Aye. Mr. Kinzinger? Kinzinger, aye. Mr. Kinzinger, aye. Mr. Chairman? Aye. Mr. Chairman, aye. The clerk will report the vote. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. The resolution is agreed to. And that's how Thursday's House January 6 hearing ended. The video aired of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi recorded on January 6 was filmed by her daughter, the documentary filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi. It had never been publicly seen before yesterday. After the hearing, CNN aired additional footage shot by Alexandra of the House Speaker reacting to Donald Trump's speech at the Ellipse on January 6. And that's what this is all about. Secret Service said... They have dissuaded him from coming to Capitol Hill. They told him they don't have the resources to protect him here. So at the moment, he is not coming, but that could change. I would come to him and punch him out. This well, is my I, mom. I would pay to see that. I'm waiting for this, for trespassing on the Capitol grounds. I'm going to punch him out, and I'm going to go to jail, and I'm going to be happy. And that does it for our show. A happy belated birthday to Miguel Nogueira and a happy early birthday to Juan Gonzalez. And today is my precious pups Zazu's second birthday. A very happy birthday to Zazu and her beloved twin brother, Kasha. 
Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a video news production fellowship, an associate digital editor, and a people and culture manager. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Gesda, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Aftarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamar Astu, Joe John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Mary Conlon, our executive director, Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Julie Staley, to Becca Staley, I'm Amy Goodman.